0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program has been brought to you by 360 Cookware. Their stainless steel cookware uses vapor technology to cook better tasting, more nutritional food. To learn more and receive 20% off, click their logo on our website, heritageradionetwork.org.
2: Hey, and welcome to the food scene on Heritage Radio network.org. Uh, I have the supreme pleasure of having Danny Meyer and Michael Romano of Union Square Hospitality Group in the studio today. Thank you both for coming. I know it's been Very welcome. months upon months of trying to organize this, so thank you, G, for actually putting this together (laughs) really appreciate this and
3: and who in the world would want to have a great lunch at roberta's followed by meeting you
2: i know exactly for shame for shame and it was a great lunch (laughs) (laughs) that it is it's a lovely vista to be able to look outside of the fishbowl that is roberta's um so much to say you've been interviewed you've talked to so much media so many times um i guess i want to start from the beginning but start asking some of the questions that haven't been asked before um a lot of people know that you're a man of St. Louis. Uh, what was life growing up uh, like as far as eating, as far as cooking, as far as hospitality? It's all I knew. I mean,
3: St. Louis is, is a city that uh, taught me everything I know to this day about treating people well. I think that the food we grew up with in retrospect uh, was not what people today would consider to be uh, by any means Cutting-edge food, oat cuisine, world-class food. But I think those early taste memories, nonetheless, are what you grew up with. And yeah. that's that's what you knew. And so if the cheese on the pizza at Emo's was Provel, which was <laughs> a St. Louis kind of Velveeta version of mozzarella. And it's still there. It's, it's, it's who knew? I didn't know the of, difference. Yeah. Ted Drew's frozen custard and steak and shake and Fitz's root beer and crinkle-cut fries – certainly were inspirational for shake shack the toasted ravioli that we got on the italian hill became you know the the basis for our pulled pork toasted ravioli at blue smoke so you you take these memories but the greatest part of the memories as i re- recall was that wherever you went st louis is a happy town you know it's you got to understand it's a city that cheers its sports heroes even when they strike out yeah and so they they make you feel like they're really happy to see you and and that's probably the biggest lesson that i took from
2: growing up there michael did you come from a similar upbringing were you midwest kid no not (laughs) at all (laughs) um i grew up in manhattan
4: in uh was called east harlem i think it's still called east harlem um italian family extended family and um food was always a a big part of anything we did, there was no getting together of family members without food playing an important role, so I think that's where I learned the importance of the the importance and the connection of food hospitality love caring uh just inextricably interwoven, and it just it stayed with me yeah, I life. love
2: hearing that word interwoven because you speak of all these things food hospitality uh you know as things that are together rather than separate um and i think you know some of the largest changes that you made in the new york dining scene were taking things that were disconnected like hot cuisine and hospitality and changing the game so in growing up did you take a lot of those things that you knew that were familiar and not elitist or exclusive and introduce those into a type of cuisine that was seen as that
3: I think that's an amazing question. I, I remember that um, the first time that I had really, really good food that, that I still to this day can taste had to do with the fact that my dad was in the travel business, primarily in France. He was the first American agent for Relais de Campagna, which was an association of family-run countryside inns throughout France, which would later become Relais and Chateau. And we had the French sons and daughters of these inn- innkeepers living in our home. And we got to travel at a very young age. When I was seven, I got to taste Fraise de Bois and Creme Fraiche and Quise Lorraine and um, you know Croque Monsieur. And all these flavors, Ratatouille, which then became the name of our dog <laughs> when I was in second grade. All these flavors that did not exist in America. But every time we tasted them... They were not in fancy restaurants. They were in the context of, you know, the dining room of a family-run inn or of a bistro, and so I never ever associated these great flavors with snootiness or with, you know, men wearing tuxedos or sommeliers looking down their nose at my dad when he ordered a bottle of wine. And so it struck me as is very odd when I moved to New York in the uh, early 1980s, and I found that in order to eat truly well, you had to go to a restaurant that started with le or la, and you had to be very, very polite to the person serving you, or you would not get served.
2: Yeah. Well, it's funny that you say that. Were they transporting these ideas in these restaurants straight from France, or were they taking the festive and elitist foods? I mean, was it... uh, tasting something in a place and reinterpreting it or tasting something in a place and bringing a bastardized version over?
4: I think I think they were, perhaps at the outset, they had intentions of bringing it as it was in France, but I saw over the years <clears throat> kind of distortions creeping in, as you, as you see in other ethnic cuisines where the people responsible kind of diluted to suit the, ta- the taste and the demands of the, the market. They're serving, uh, not. I think wrongly so. I think they, they should maintain the the high standards. But um, sometimes you saw in some of these places distortions and, and food that shouldn't be there, using frozen food and canned food and things like that. I'm talking about back in the yeah. '70s and '80s. Um, but. Now you see there's a whole generation of young French chefs, uh, (laughs) not so young anymore, who are doing such a great job and really upholding the highest standards in in French cuisine.
3: But Uh, I I think one of the issues was that there was a perception both on the part of several French chefs and restaurateurs and even Italian chefs and restaurateurs that if they were going to bring their cooking to New York, it had to be... Up to the standards of New York. And in their mind, rightly or wrongly, what New Yorkers wanted was this sense of pomp to go along Mm. with the cooking. Whereas when you went to a bistro or a family run inn in the countryside or you went to a trattoria or a family run inn in the countryside of Italy, it was never – it was about, Mm. you know, mama in the kitchen and papa serving the food. And and so – it's a long answer to your question, but to try to divorce a sense of welcome in the dining room from the sense of generosity that goes into the cooking, something gets lost.
2: Yeah, I mean, both of you guys, well, Danny, you stodged around Europe a little bit. Michael, you cooked around kitchens around the world. Um, was there that same sense of hospitality or you know camaraderie in the kitchens that you worked in or spent time with? Uh, I think
4: I have to say honestly at the, uh, the higher the level of the place I'm thinking about France um, there was there's a certain amount of pressure that comes in especially when you start counting up those Michelin stars there's an incredible amount of pressure and yes there was camaraderie but there was also not it wasn't the same as what we do in our, our, our restaurants now and um, I think the pressure outweighed that sense of fun and camaraderie often. Um, I- incredible learning experiences. Many people from all over the world, y- young cooks flocked to these places because they wanted to get it on their resume and get the experience. But it wasn't always the most fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs>
5: but,
3: I had sort of the opposite yeah. experience because the restaurants where I staged in Rome were all trattorias. Mm. They'd never even heard of the Michelin. If, yeah. if you mention that name, they, they might have heard of the tire, but they didn't really <laughs> care about the guide. And there was lots of warmth and fun. We'd play cards before service. Mm-hmm. And then the the restaurant where I staged in Bordeaux, ironically, had lost its second Michelin star three days before I got there. <laughs> and so there had been a mass exodus of cooks from that kitchen wow. because they wanted to get out before their resume was, was demoted in right. a certain way. The good news for me was that that made... The opportunities I had to to get my hands dirty, a lot greater than mm-hmm. than had had it been a two star restaurant right. shooting for three.
2: Right. So let's talk about stars for a second, because when you guys first started collaborating, when you first joined forces with Union Square Cafe, uh, what year did you join, Michael? Eighty eight. Eighty eight. Then you opened it in what about eighty five? Eighty five. So in that three year stasis, what was going on in that restaurant, and how did Michael come in there and change it?
3: Well, Michael and I had first met in 1984 at a seafood restaurant called Pesca, and uh, I had taken a job as an assistant lunch manager, $250 a week, (laughs) trying to decide if if this urge that I thought I had to get into the restaurant business was real. And actually, Michael came into my life um, in a very, very kind of serendipitous way, both for both of us, he had just uh, returned from cooking in France uh, at, at uh, a three-star Michelin restaurant, mm. and I think you were waiting to to try to land a job as the chef of a of a French restaurant, and that's what that's what Michael's career path was. Right. Whereas I was trying to decide how to gather the courage to tell my parents that I wanted to get into the restaurant business and. The only way that I could do that was to tell them that that maybe one day I would become a chef because being a restaurateur or a maitre d' or a sommelier, not what you were supposed to have done with your liberal arts degree. (laughs) And it just so happened that the very week that Michael uh, got to Pesco, which was really a holding pattern for him while he was waiting for the real thing, happened to be the week that I shifted from the front door into the kitchen. And he was like, a complete breath of fresh air in terms of professionalism, in terms of technique, in terms of his meticulousness. And we struck up a friendship and sustained it even after he had gotten the head chef job, the executive chef job at La Caravelle, the first American, uh, chef American-born chef ever to get one of those law jobs. And we had opened Union Square Cafe in in 85 with a, a young chef named Ali Barker, who had been a chef poissonnier at La Côte Basque. He had never even been sous chef, never mind a chef. And he, he had promised me two years, and he gave me three. He didn't have the kind of culinary background Michael had, but the restaurant nonetheless had garnered an amazing following among the publishing community. We got two stars from Brian Miller, which was a big deal back then, It was enough to bring foodies in. Um, It was an era where two stars was not damning with faint praise. It was actually very good. It was as good as you could get, actually, if you were a casual restaurant. You know, we're sitting here at Roberta's, which has taken the notion even further by a lot than we did in 1985 of pairing really good cooking and really good wine with very casual atmospheres. At least we had backs on our chairs there. Um, But... When Michael came to Union Square Cafe in 1988, uh, and Union Square Cafe very soon thereafter was promoted to three stars in the New York Times, that was was pretty groundbreaking because it was never, ever a fancy restaurant. And that was making a big statement that excellence did not need to only be the domain of the tuxedo-clad waiter restaurant.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, uh, the patrons, too. Who were the foodies at that point? Because here, I think foodies have been redefined in the sense of casual as well, rather than, you know, exclusive dining. Was it a completely different crowd that you felt like you were serving at La Caravelle and Union Square Café?
4: Well, certainly between those two, yes. La Caravelle had, even at the time I joined, over 20 years of history and well-established, and it was the sort of Upper East Side, Manhattan Crowd and all the big names and you know the boldface names were there and and um, uh, I got to shake hands with Vladimir Horowitz which I will always remember but and and downtown was as you said the publishing crowd and uh, locals uh,
3: architects artists advertising firms right a lot of people who had started to travel but you you raise a good point because we were right on the cusp of the era where those with Foodie knowledge and wine knowledge were a very exclusive and I mean exclusive crowd, like you know, these they they belong to clubs. And if you belong to the club it's because of what you knew and what others did not know. Yeah. Whereas what we really tried to do was to make good food and good wine as accessible to the many as possible. We educated our staff. We didn't have a sommelier. We had wine dinners six or eight Sunday nights a year, um, mm-hmm. and and we really took a journey together mm-hmm. with our patrons. Michael and I would travel to to different parts of Italy, different parts of France, to right. to so, try to bring these ideas back and pair it with green market right. cooking.
4: And we made a, a, a big and a successful effort to make wine more uh, understandable and affordable for people and it became known as a wine destination and uh i think we did a did a lot of great work in promoting that aspect of it i think that was very successful
2: so we're talking about both food and wine but we haven't touched so much on service because that was a real game changer for union square cafe and that area too, union square um which is not the green market (laughs) you know is now It, it was a different time it was a different place um What was it like bringing in, you know, fresh produce and having wine programs? How was that neighborhood uh, taking to Union Square Cafe?
3: It was great. I mean, I, I think it's important to remember that for 49 years before Union Square Cafe opened, our site was the very first vegetarian restaurant in New York called Brownies. And I remember while we were constructing the place, and this was my only job at that point was to oversee the construction not that I was the contractor guy, but when I went to work every day, it was to hang out with the guys building it and and kibitz with them and make comments about what I wanted. Every day, five or six or seven people would come up and almost accusingly um, tell me that I had taken away their <laughs> vegetarian restaurant. And I assured every one of them that the very reason that I had selected this site, and this goes back to having cooked in France and Italy and living in the house with the chef and going to the market every day where it's not a badge that you wear on your shirt that, you know, I use seasonal produce. You just do it because that's how it's done. That's why I located the restaurant there and I assured people that there would be very, very fresh and abundant use of vegetables there. So that made sense to people. Um, It took us a good probably a year before we could get aligned with the farmers only to be able to serve one special a week that would rely (laughs) upon the green market. Um, Michael, when when he came to the restaurant, I'll never forget the first thing he said was, you know, can't we change this age-old tradition that to be a luxury restaurant means having to serve vegetables out of season? That it means that you're in sync with luxury if you serve raspberries in January and asparagus in November. Why can't we be the kind of restaurant that says, not just for one special on on our Saturday Green Market lunch, what about every single meal that we are serving food that's in season? Michael came to the restaurant and said, you know what, I love the BLT at this restaurant. I love the fact that you guys have gone out and sourced great bacon and great bread and you're making your own mayonnaise but we're only serving that when tomatoes are locally grown in the green market and and then that approach took hold with absolutely every single thing we did we never wore it as a badge on our sleeve we never put the names of the farms uh, on our menu we did it because it was the right thing to do and we've been doing that since the beginning
2: what other traditions did you scrap then i mean uh, not to say this is like an anti-mission statement, but it kind of is in the sense that, you know, there were these very old and antiquated rules about how to run a restaurant. What did you say no more to?
5: Hmm. Uh,
4: I'm in the dining room, and one of the things that was important to us was that never to have um, a server or, or quote-unquote busboy say to the diner, uh, I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to that. Let me get your waiter so we as Danny said we didn't have a sommelier but we had everyone really well educated so that anyone could reply to a query from a guest um, which I think is a much nicer way to to go about it than sorry I'll get your waiter
2: yeah no but Um, I mean it also eliminates the caste system the hierarchy in a restaurant kind of puts everyone as equals
4: right we didn't have that captain system and the the, uh, head waiter system it just it was a really well trained group of enthusiastic people who knew the menu and the wine list inside out. I also
3: think Union Square Cafe was one of the very first fine dining restaurants in New York to serve uh, meals at the bar. I know that sounds preposterous to hear me say that. But at the time, if you wanted to eat at a bar by yourself, you pretty much had to go to a coffee shop. And if you wanted to eat well as a solo Mm -hmm. diner in a restaurant, You were often made to feel like an outcast for taking up only half of a table. We were also one of the first restaurants to offer a a panoply of dessert wines by the glass. Again, probably sounds preposterous, but it wasn't happening. As a matter of fact, House Wines in 1985 were generally thought to be the cheapest wine you could find And this was back in the days when it was always a screw-top bottle, but way before good wines were bottled with screw-tops. Yeah, And we really made a point of having five or six fantastic wines uh, that were incredibly well-priced relative to uh, if you could even find those wines elsewhere in town.
2: Yeah. And was the food well-priced? Or was it something that was a reach for a lot of people then? What community were you trying to get in the restaurant? Aside from that, that lived there.
3: Well, let's put it this way: we didn't. One one thing that has changed dramatically today, all these years later, is that to be a foodie back then meant that you were probably minimally in your thirties or forties; that you had a career, that you had disposable income, that you had traveled quite a bit. Today, I think that uh, you know. Keep in mind that was before the Food Network, before the internet. And so people got their news from the New York Times and from Gourmet Magazine. um, And, you know, that was kind of it at that time. So today, dining out and eating well, thank God, is the domain of anybody who wants to. I I think uh, there are more people who begin being foodies and who begin being cooks at a much younger age, they're spending more of their disposable income on food. So to answer your question, my friends who were in their early 20s when I opened Union Square Cafe found some of the pricing to be a stretch. $19 entrees, $18 entrees, $21 for you know, a bottle of Brico Manzoni, $23 for a bottle of Quinterelli Valpolicella, $16 for a bottle of Sancerre. They found that to be a a bit of a stretch, but for established foodies in their 30s and 40s and 50s who had been paying $55 for a prefix dinner of Michael's cooking at La Caravelle, came downtown where there weren't a whole lot of restaurants at that point, and they said, this is a steal.
2: We're going to take a quick break and talk about number two, Union Square being number one, Gramercy Tavern being number two, and from there on out, how the empire began. You've been listening to The Food Scene on Radio network.org. We'll be right back.
1: You're listening to Summer Jam by Cookies on Radio Network.org. Today's program has been brought to you by AmeriCraft. AmeriCraft and 360 Cookware are proud sponsors of HeritageRadioNetwork.org. AmeriCraft is an American company, and like Heritage Radio Network, they provide the best. Their 360 Cookware is made of the highest quality ingredients, like United States Steel. It is made in the greenest cookware manufacturing plant in the world. AmeriCraft makes great cookware and is focused on improvement. 360 Cookware is their exclusive line. It's a contemporary line of cookware and bakeware intended to let you, the Heritage Radio Network listeners, have a unique cooking experience. Its vapor seal allows food to be cooked in its natural juices, preserving all of the vitamins, minerals, and other nutrients without added water, oils, or fats. 360 Cookware invites you to learn more about how this process works on their website, www.360cookware.com.
2: Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Danny Meyer and Michael Romano of Union Square Hospitality Group, Union Square Cafe, and you'll learn about all the rest soon. Um, but we were, we were talking about old and new traditions. Mm. Um, and don't want to gloss over, because I'm sure you guys changed so many things that now seem kind of, you know, uh, the norm to you, that you you may not have even realized how big an impact it was. What, what were some of the other things that... Well, specifically in the kitchen, I I, um,
4: I think something that we changed was this sort of an attitude of saying yes <laughs> to guests, <laughs> um, getting away from that, well, the chef does it this way and that's the way you're going to have it. It was more about, uh, I'm cooking for you, I want to cook for you, so what? how would you like this done? How would you like... This dish, but within reason. If I if I could possibly do it, if I had it in the house, if I could make uh, the change that the guest was asking for, I would do it and and do it happily. And um, so we created this whole sort of this big sigh of relief and relaxation among the staff, who didn't have to uh, face. A, a, a guest who was getting more and more irate because they weren't getting what they wanted and come back in the kitchen and face a chef who was going <coughs> to scream at them and throw something at them and then create this whole terrible tension that then spills out into the dining room. We kind of you know, just did away with that and, and said, sure, let's find a way to make this work. You know, we're, we're, It's about, my feeling was it's about the guest experience. They're coming to our restaurant, enjoying their meal, paying for their meal. I want to do what I can to make them have a great time.
2: But that definitely changes the latitude of a cook. Um, you know, y- how do you teach someone to cook modularly like that? Because I think for so many years, people were taught, this is what a finished dish looks like, and you cook it to this exact you know, moment. This mm. is how you muse it out. H- how do you reteach a kitchen? Well, that
4: that didn't go away. That's important. Yeah. You need to have... Uh, <clears throat> it doesn't really work to have all the cooks cooking whatever they felt like, yeah. or however they felt like, but... Um, A variation that could come up and i mean i'd either go back and do it myself or explain how how it was supposed to be done um no you couldn't get away from the the focus and the discipline of this is and i was very careful about always having you know recipe sheets and whenever i change a menu there was there was a whole procedure so that the cooks were uh in line uh on what was expected but um no, it's you know it's a lot easier than I never understood why it
3: was you know chef does it this way and that's it and that's how you're going to have it. I, well, it, it really gets into the world of fashion, which is that you're responsible for very very high standards when it comes to making the fabric and making the suit, and yet once someone orders it, you're willing to tailor it to their measure. Right. Right. But but you're not compromising on the quality. Right. I'll never forget uh, a young chef once asked Andre Soltner. Um, who's been a mentor to each of us. And they said, Chef, but, but you never, please admit it, you never cooked a steak well done for one of your guests at Lutes, did you? And without skipping a beat, chef, Sol- chef Soltner said, Are you crazy? Of course I did. And the chef said, or the, the, the questioning young chef said, But that would ruin the steak. And Soltner said, If a guest is asking me for a well done steak, That's how he orders it wherever he goes. Do you not think that I have the confidence that I can make a better (laughs) well-done steak than any other chef in the city? Yeah. And that's the approach that we took.
2: Yeah. And use the word procedure. And I think that's a a great segue or parlay into Gramsci Tavern or forming Union Square Hospitality. Um, Of course, it was a different restaurant. Of course, uh, you know, it was a different staff. And though similar cuisine... uh, what kind of procedures, what kind of protocols did you have in place to make sure that it was all Union Square Hospitality Group? None. <laughs> <laughs> None, at the, right?
3: No, we had no idea what we
4: were doing. It was based on that that m- made us reflect and say, well, how, how are we going to divide ourselves here? Especially Danny, because now he had to be in two places at the same time. How are we going to do this? And it caused us to sit down and, and think about what we had been doing instinctively think about we had we had been doing it kind of by the seat of our pants but also just going on our gut and what felt right but now we had to stop and and really be sort intentional
3: of where we had always
4: intentional, been intentional right and codify it in the sense of saying right. well what, what is it we're doing here exactly
2: yeah where did you log that where did you write that down was it all mental or was it all on paper posted um, on walls <laughs> <laughs> no no first
3: it was chalkback Yeah, we started to hit the wall and we realized that even though the restaurants were purposely only four blocks away from one another and Gramercy Tavern was purposely very close to the green market, that I tried every experiment on earth in order to try to be two places at once. At the very, very beginning, I would do every morning and lunch at Union Square Cafe and every afternoon and dinner at Gramercy Tavern, fail. (laughs) Then I tried to do every Monday through half of Wednesday at Union Square Cafe and second half of Wednesday through Friday at Gramercy Tavern, fail. And finally, it became very, very clear that, that this was not about where I was and where I wasn't. It was that my earlier management style, which was monkey see, monkey do, if you see Danny doing it, that's how he wants it done, would have to, in fact, be codified, would have to be written down. Um... And it was really only after a series of really demoralizing events at Gramercy Tavern, where things were happening there, that turned my stomach uh, with respect to hospitality towards our guests. While I was at Union Square Cafe, that I called a timeout, and that was really the beginning of what we now call enlightened hospitality, um, where we named what mattered to us the most. Yes, the food has to be amazing. Yes, the wine list and the cocktails and the service, all the performance things have to be amazing. But just as important, or maybe even more important, is that nothing, no matter how good it tastes, will ever ever satisfy your soul in the absence of hospitality. And making it clear to our staff members, that not only was the customer not always right, but the customer was number two. And that in, counterintuitively, we named the fact that the best way we could assure customer satisfaction was to hold our staff members responsible for how they treated each other first. And that only happened after a series of failures at Gramercy Tavern.
2: Would you like to talk about those failures? Not like this is, you know, a psychiatrist's couch, but I'd love to know what those points were that made you say stop.
3: Well, they were stomach-turning moments like, you know, a guest calling me over after her lunch and, and saying, first of all, how dare you charge me for half of a salmon that was overcooked and leave it at the coat check uh, for me to pick up afterwards to add insult to injury. You know, who, why would you do something like that? And, and I only then learned that our manager basically got out a, a ruler and said, well, of course we're going to charge her. She ate half of it. Well, she didn't like it. Mm-hmm. And she did not want to ruin her business lunch by complaining about it. But You know, those types of events, which are so painful, I don't even want to recount them right now, were happening, you know, on a pretty frequent basis.
2: Oh, it's funny. Those seem so analytical. And the the greatest part of enlightened hospitality uh, in in your book and from other times that I've seen you speak and been in your restaurants is about feeling. And, you know, uh, in the restaurant industry, something that is so about specific points, you know, measurements and, you know, uh, price points, etc. To have feeling brought in was kind of revolutionary. Well, one of the
3: things that I, I don't know that I've ever said before, but getting back to one of your earlier questions, one of the innovations that, that Union Square Cafe brought about that we absolutely continued and then some at Gramercy Tavern was to bring women into the equation of a three-star dining experience. I know that the French restaurant kitchens that Michael grew up with, the French restaurant dining rooms of that time, they forbade women. They would use reasons like they can't possibly carry trays, they can't do the work of men, they can't stand being yelled at in the kitchen. And because we had not permitted yelling anywhere in our restaurant, um, and because we believe that there is a different and very deep sense of hospitality that you get from a woman than you get from a man. It's not that a man's incapable of doing it. But just as we see in the United States Senate, the more women there seems to change the way it feels. Yeah. And there's no question that, that women in the dining room and women in the kitchen changes what you cook. How you plate the food, how you serve the food. And um, what's great about what's great about hospitality is that unlike all the things we serve, which are very tangible, which you today you can take a picture of it, if I go to a restaurant and I love a dish, or I love a chair or I love a flower presentation, I can take a picture of it and I can text it immediately to a chef and say, "Try this idea. Nobody can copy hospitality. Nobody can copy the way you make people feel. That comes from a sense of community, and it's, it's a kinetic energy. And the greatest compliment you could pay us for any of our restaurants is that the minute you walk in the door, you just feel something different.
2: Yeah. Um, I want to talk about head chefs, you know, executives, chefs, de cuisines, the people behind the kitchens. You open up Grand Mercy Tavern with uh, Tom Coligio. Now, Michael Anthony. Uh, Kenny Callahan is over at Blue Smoke. Uh, Chris Bradley is over at Untitled. Um, Nick
3: Ander, Myelina, Floyd
2: Cardo's at North End Grill. All wonderful men. Do they have a feminine touch in the kitchen? Is there a way to teach that feminine touch? I mean, I know you have wonderful pastry chefs. Like Nancy Olson at Gramercy is one of my favorite people. And I think Yet one of the pastry most, chef. Most, yeah. most
3: underrated pastry chefs in the country. completely agree. There's also Lynn Bound who does the extraordinary food, who is a woman. Because um, I know the name Lynn yeah. might be confusing, but Lynn is an ex- exceptional chef, and she does all of our food at the cafes at Museum of
2: Modern Art. Yeah. So is, do you see a difference in those foods? I mean, Michael, can you tell when a woman cooks something versus a man? Hmm. Good question.
4: Uh, I think not. I think I think it's a more a question of whether that person, be that person a, a man or a woman, is cooking from his or whole her heart and soul. You know, Where's where this food coming from? Is is it from from uh, uh, just uh, the cerebral? Is it just um, textbook cerebral kind of thing or is it really connected to something that this person feels and that i think makes a big difference um you know floyd's food at north end and certainly his food at tabla was connected to something very deep inside of him so i don't think it. i don't know i don't i don't find it along male female lines i find it along well i I think you're
3: right in our restaurants because we've really worked hard to hire chefs no matter their gender, they cook from their heart. Right. But I know that if we were to speak with our good friend Joyce Goldstein in San Francisco, she, who who was the founding chef of Square One, and she was the first chef at the cafe at Chez Panisse, she believes very, very firmly that there's boy cooking and girl cooking. And it may be different in San Francisco, because she thinks that the whole Alice Waters family tree that be- begat all kinds of women chefs... Is a very different family tree than the French guys, Michael Mina's. And she thinks that the way the food is conceived and plated is very, very different. That, that what the Italians call casalinga, you know, really yeah. home cooking with a, a confidence that, that using great ingredients and not worrying so much about making little piles on the plate and, you know, trying to gain Michelin stars is is an area in which women are much more comfortable whereas the guys are competitive with one another they want the stars they they do the gimmicks that, that they think they have to do to get attention
2: yeah well i mean i've always felt of your restaurants being kind of communal in their in their cooking in their in their spirit so it's it's that what it takes a village it almost feels like it's cooked from a village mm-hmm. uh, you know that that there's this common thread amongst all your chefs across mm. the board um, and that leads me to also talk about mentoring. There's a completely different thing uh, in your restaurants that I've seen in how, you know, higher-ups treat, uh, you know, sous chefs, you know, prep cooks. Uh, you have Carmen over at Union Square Cafe, right, and um, who I think often does not get, uh, you know, the mention because... People know Michael Romano as Union Square Cafe. Well, let's mention him. Carmen is doing an exceptionally (laughs) amazing job. job. Wonderful person, wonderful cook. How do you teach somebody in that position to be in that position? Well, I don't know that I taught
4: Carmen to be in that position. Carmen came along and, um, you know, sort of applied for the job. And we talked with him, tasted his food, and just felt that kindred spirit... It was not an easy thing for me to do to turn over that kitchen to someone Um, it could not have happened unless that person i felt somehow connected with and someone who got not that that person was going to do my food but that the person was going to do union square cafe food to carry on to have a continuity so that people would not walk in and say well what what happened here this is so different and that doesn't happen it's it's um, so it really was w- inside of him already. I mean, we were able to, you know, I was able to help shape the vision and help f- just form it and show him what we what we do there and, and and the way to do it. But he brings so many incredible gifts to that to that job and that kitchen that um, it was just a, it was you know so fortuitous. It was a great match. Yeah. it was perfect.
3: I would say that under Carmen. The restaurant has taken a decided tilt towards Italy and away right. from France. And I think under your watch, the restaurant was sort of 50 50.
4: Yeah, I think that's true.
2: Well, I mean, you know, as the culinary director, uh, what do you say? Do you say, oh, I'd rather it be France? Or do you let that person's vision shine?
4: No, I think it was time to let, it was definitely the right move to let that person's <clears throat> vision shine. And also, keep in mind that, um, Back in the the, when I was first at Union Square Cafe, that's all we had. So, to offer, you know, I was doing Indian food, I was doing all all kinds of different things, that was fine. But as our restaurant group, our family of restaurants grew, and so then we had French more, we had Indian, we had it was nice to be able to tighten the focus on Italy. And it wasn't mandated to Carmen, it just came naturally to him because that's where who he is and what he loves. So uh, it was a beautiful – the symmetry of it was, was really, really good. And I, th- I like the fact that there's that, that tighter focus. Yeah. I think it makes sense. And yeah. so
2: you talk about this felicity of having someone come into that position and just be right. How do you find those people for you know, Union Square Hospitality as a whole? I mean, if you were to interview me right now for a position at any of your restaurants, be it a cook, be it a server, what questions would you ask me? Or what would you be looking for from a person?
3: I would want to know two things because we. what's great about working in our company is it's, it's a very, very simple two-ingredient recipe. The, um, and we can even tell you the proportions of those ingredients. It's, we want to get 100 on our test. We're very competitive. And I want to know how good you are at what you do and I want to know how good you are at who you are. I want to know how much pleasure it gives you to be great at what you do in the service of others if you were a kid and you were baking toll house cookies which every kid did at some point in their life you know right off the yellow the recipe on the back of the yellow bag i want to know why you cook those toll house cookies for every kid it's yeah because at the end of cooking i might get to eat cookies but i want to hire someone who makes the best cookies and i promise you if you give that yellow bag to 10 kids you're going to get ten slightly different cookies. So, yes, I want the best cookie, but let's say three of them did pretty much the best, three of the ten kids. Of those three kids, I want the kid whose greatest joy was first presenting the platter of those cookies to someone else for their pleasure.
2: So do you actually give people cookie dough at the <laughs> interviews and the little Easy Bake Oven? No, bad. a great idea. <laughs> Well, we're going to take another quick break and come back and talk about Shake Shack Creative Juice, which is sitting right in front of me, and I'm very excited to taste. Um, And, you know, the the, the future of Union Square Hospitality Group. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back.
1: Once again, this is Summer Jam by Cookies on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today.
2: And welcome back to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host Michael Harland orkel, back again with Danny Meyer and Michael Romano of Union Square Hospitality Group. And wow, what a rainbow of juices we yeah. have in front of us!
4: Could I? is something I've just been wanting to say. Going back a few minutes to what the Danny's story about the uh, half salmon, I was struck by something that I think is very important, Danny, that you've given us and. Uh, what that maitre d' in that situation was doing was, was creating and defending boundaries. You know, it's, okay, here's what we uh, have to defend, and we will not step across that line. And, well, you ate it, so you're paying for it, et cetera. And one of the great things Danny brought to us was a sense of, don't be afraid. Let go of that boundary. Give, and you'll get back more than you gave. So drop the boundaries. Don't worry about you're going to lose the business. Don't worry about losing money. Um, the more you're able to let that flow and let the boundary dissolve between you and the guest, they will feel that and feel much better about the experience. And in the end, it will be much better for the business as well. So that was, that was a great lesson.
2: Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I also think that you've constantly broken boundaries and redefined uh, uh, spaces, both as restaurants and culturally. Um, You know, from Gramercy Tavern, you know, having restaurants like uh, Eleven Madison Park, Tabla, of course, which was, you know, uh, so far ahead of its time. I I can't even imagine what people reacted to. Uh, Eleven, that's, well. Tabla uh,
3: might still be ahead of its time. Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Blue Smoke and Jazz Standard just to have that combo, to have that, you know, cultural space with food. Um, And then Shake Shack, which is an enigma uh uh, you know this this autonomous amazing entity that how are these all linear or are they uh from union square cafe so union square that's a great
3: question union square cafe is adam's rib or eve's rib or whosever rib it is and when you were asking michael earlier about uh, before we got on the air about union square tokyo the goal was never that that restaurant have the exact same menu as Union Square Cafe, but rather the same spirit. And the spirit was we're going to cook from the heart, serve from the heart, but we're going to tailor it to what you want. And so, no matter what we take on, whether it's Shake Shack serving cheeseburgers and shakes and fries, or whether it's the modern serving, you know, roasted duck or capon with black truffles stuffed under the skin, we really take the same approach. Creative Juice, our newest venture, uh, which we're doing in partnership with Equinox right now, is to see what can we add to the dialogue on something that we already like a lot. So we certainly didn't invent French restaurants or Indian restaurants or you know jazz clubs the or burger. juice bars or burgers. And, and quite frankly, anyone who says they invented something is either full of it or, or they're doing something so contrived that it doesn't matter anyway. So what we much prefer to do is to say, what if we take something that we already love and just look at it from a different angle? And either through how we source ingredients or how we hire a staff or through the technique we use or through the combination, in the same way a musician, all musicians are using the same notes of the octave, but why do we have so many different songs? because they're just combining those notes a little bit differently. And technique comes into play as well as timing. I think you you said tabla was ahead of its time. I don't know that tabla was ahead of its time. I just think we built a restaurant way too big. It was our biggest restaurant. 283 seats is too many seats for such a narrowly focused idea as Indian cooking. But what we love is to take one idea, which is enlightened hospitality, and to splay that idea over many, many different culinary points of view. We don't take one culinary point of view in the hand of one chef and splay that over many different concepts. So each one of our restaurants shares a kinship in terms of the spirit of the endeavor, the spirit of welcome. But each one of our restaurants has at the helm a culinarian who has a very specific point of view and for that reason we think we can give you a palette of experiences we can also give our staff members um, who love working within that environment different kind of opportunities to learn different things from different chefs and that's a really exciting thing to be able to offer
2: so i mean just looking at the juice too how did you refocus i mean seeing some of the ingredients themselves, it, it looks more like a culinary uh, standpoint than it does a juicing standpoint. Yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I approached
4: these uh, from the viewpoint of, well, two things. One, uh, trying to use a wider variety of ingredients than I was seeing being used out there. And two, uh, approach each juice as a dish, as if I were composing a dish that I put in front of you, um, so that it had... So it was a complete composition. It had a beginning, a middle, and an end. And... Um, A balance of acidity sweetness uh different flavors some ingredients play starring roles others are supporting roles and in the end it should be just a pleasurable experience uh um to to drink not something that you kind of hold your nose and down because (laughs) you think it's good for you
2: i think i always do that when i see a juice as green as this one uh the green means go yeah with what swiss chard tuscan kale spinach cucumber ginger kohlrabi well, you pick. You, you actually
4: pick the one that's the most. The term we use is "hardcore," <laughs> uh, because it's it's really uh, responding to that that demand in the market. The others are slightly different focus, um, but this one, yeah, has has a, a lot of great ingredients. Actually,
2: it's it's kind of wonderful because when when I have a juice like this, there's a mouthfeel that I expect that. I'm getting something completely different from this green juice. I hope, I hope better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, No, no, really good. I mean, kind of this feels like the palate cleanser I hope these juices to be rather than the thing that wipes you out, wipes out your palate and gives you like a clean slate. Mm, like th- th- There's an addition right. that happens by right. drinking this. And it's not me just blowing smoke up your ass because you're here <laughs> and these juices are in front of me. But it is a much different right. um, feeling or sensation than mm. most juices. And what other juices do try. we have here? Yeah. And it's this one is one, yeah. The Good Fight.
4: And so this is this was a rethinking of uh, a classic combination of carrot, apple, ginger. Um, but I, what I tried to do is put the carrot in such a proportion that it not be overwhelming. And then I added things like cabbage and kefir lime and lemongrass to provide uh, complexity, um, more interest, and something that is brighter, lighter, more refreshing. And uh, that actually goes very well with food.
2: Yeah. And c- it's composed. Again, I'm not picking out singular things like right. kohlrabi isn't at the forefront. Uh, right. It all kind of comes together.
4: Yeah, because I, I would always find that j- carrot juice, just carrot juice on itself, is quite overwhelming. It's very sweet. It's heavy. It's cloying. And I want you to finish each sip with, in the back of your palate to get a little tingle that makes you want to go back for that next sip.
3: So this one is... Soothe
2: operator. Mm. <laughs> you guys have a lot of fun naming these things, don't you? Well, oh, yeah. that's that's the easy part. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And what's in Michael talking so about? So you've, you've got
4: you've uh, got jicama, you've got some uh, uh, um, tropical notes like pineapple, mango. You've got a little jalapeno in there. I'm
2: taking the jalapeno.
4: Cilantro, which you don't see a lot in, yeah. in juices. Many people have told me it would be a great base for
2: cocktail <laughs> I, was, I was about to say not just cocktail but i mean soup basis braising i mean yeah they're i'm not saying that i don't want to drink these but there are so many things that you can do with this other than drink these right That that's kind of <laughs> awesome um i want to bring it back to shake shack though um i mean you're, you're talking about refocusing something and i think this is such an amazing smart thing to do for your business extend itself into something that it Didn't know, but was obviously uh, a a big market and, uh, you know, something that you could proliferate with. How did you do that with Shake Shack? I mean, there are so many burger places out there. What defined Shake Shack and what got it to, you know, Qatar and Doha and, you know, Dubai?
3: We're going to stay on juice for just one (laughs) second. No, because I think that the same kind of questions, Michael, that you were asking about... Chefs and, and whatever we choose to do, whether it's burgers or juice, Indian food. That came from Michael's love for India at the time. If you go to the very first Union Square Cafe cookbook, uh, which was published in 1994, and the second Union Square Cafe cookbook published in 2001, there are juicing recipes. Michael's been, Michael turned me on to buying my first Omega centrifugal juicer <laughs> in the early 1990s. He was making risotto where instead of using chicken stock, he would juice things. He would juice carrots. He would juice cucumbers and jalapeno. So this is something that we've been interested in for a long time. I think, unlike Shake Shack, we were not necessarily early, early to the game. But, you know, if I write a song today and it's a great song, no one cares that it's not the first song that was ever written. You either like the song or you don't. And I and I do believe that Creative Juice... Uh, has a real point of differentiation because it's really trying to make the case that wait a minute, whoever wrote the rule that hedonism and health cannot be part of the same sentence. We were taught growing up that if you crave something, it must not must not be good for you, and if it's really good for you, it's probably not very hedonistic, and that's what Creative Juice is trying to do. Shake Shack. Likewise was born quite accidentally, which was that it was meant to be a solution to a problem in Madison Square Park. We had worked very closely with the Madison Square Park Conservancy to, to bring about an art project in Madison Square Park. And the art project, there was a Thai artist, and he came up with a great idea called I Heart Taxi. And he put two big taxi cabs up on stilts, and he had a working hot dog cart to go with it because his political statement was that there are two truly democratic things in the world, taxi cabs and hot dog carts, because everyone in the world has either been the person who could afford to take a taxi or who had to be the guy to drive it. And everyone else in the world has either been able to be the guy that could afford to buy a hot dog or had to be the guy selling it. We volunteered to to conceive the hot dog cart, to go with this piece of art. And we cooked everything out of the kitchen of 11 Madison Park. And we said, if we're going to do a hot dog cart, it's got to be hospitality and it's got to add something to the dialogue on hot dog cart. So we did Chicago-style hot dogs, homemade lemon verbena iced tea, beet-stained potato chips, and Rice Krispie Treats. That was the menu. We did it for three years, um, way beyond the the art show because the people loved it. And in year four, which was 2004, working with the Madison Square Park Conservancy, we expanded the hot dog cart and turned it into a permanent kiosk. In fact, it took all of six minutes to scribble down the menu for Shake Shack on the back of a piece of paper with pencil. The menu that got scribbled down that day is 95% of what (laughs) we serve at Shake Shack today. And lo and behold, we learned after summer one that we had completely misdesigned the inside of this 20 by 20 shack, because we had given way too much real estate to hot dogs, not nearly enough real estate for burgers, and not nearly enough real estate for shakes. And so we scrubbed that in year two. At that point, the first three years, uh, four years, Shake Shack was seasonal. It was only open during what we call baseball season, essentially, April through October. And we didn't open a second Shake Shack for the first five years because it was never our intention except to, to have an amenity for Madison Square Park.
2: And now it's overseas, uh, City Field, Nationals Park. Um, now it's becoming such an icon of Union Square hospitality as well as just burgers in this country. Um, how does it feel to kind of sate your childhood, your, your your rearing years and be able to reintroduce custards and reintroduce or even things that you love, Michael, like Tokyo. How, how does it feel to be able to cook or serve something in the realm of something that you love that you weren't necessarily taught? Well, it
4: feels great. I mean, there's nothing of Tokyo, I think, in Shake Shack. I'm not sure if that's what you meant, but um, yeah, that always feels wonderful to be able to express oneself with things that mean something on a deeply personal level and I have been uh my experience in Japan has enabled me to explore Japanese food which I which I really love and get to know it better and um I always try to when I'm cooking over there sneak in a few kind of <laughs> Japanese fusion things and make it not too obvious but um uh, but it's but it's a lot of fun it's a lot of fun but I think getting back to Shake Shack I, there's one very important part of that in that what was being served on that very simple menu, the quality was so, so great in a very simple way, but we uh, adhered <laughs> to very high standards in everything concerning the shack and um, came out with a product. If, if that product was not, and I'm, I'm admittedly not very objective about it, but if it's not as good as it is, it, this wouldn't have happened uh, for all the nice story and design and everything. It it comes down to that product, and it's very craveable. It's really delicious, and there's a lot of integrity is the thing about it that uh, is so
3: important. I think one of the untold stories about Shake Shack is that if you think about any chains, food chains around the country, I don't know too many that were born from a fine dining restaurant group where the head of purchasing had been our head of purchasing at the Modern, the head of culinary had been the, the head tavern cook at Gramercy Tavern. The head of of operations had come from Tabla. The CEO of the company, Randy Garuti, had been the GM of Tabla and Union Square Cafe and the head of all of our fine dining restaurants operations. And so getting back to what Michael was saying earlier, we basically asked ourselves a question. and We said, whoever wrote the rule that because you're serving burgers and shakes at a certain price point you can't bring the same sensibility to how you source products you know we use Mass Brothers chocolate in, in our shakes in fact we have Mass Brothers has, has been commissioned to do a gorgeous chocolate bar that if you haven't tried you should try it yeah. just for Shake Shack
4: I bought 20 of them to <laughs> Tokyo by the way
3: that's why I couldn't get any to yes. take to my friends in Italy um, but it, it, it's an approach and it and it's working. We're not dumbing down anything.
2: Well, I mean, you talk about the same quality, and I mean, this this is a great introduction to family table, a new cookbook by Union Square Hospitality as a whole. Um, Michael heading this project about family meal, about you know right. something that, and let's go back to when I I, I asked uh, you know what kind of. New and old traditions were there. I mean, the, the way you changed family meals in, in New York City restaurants, um, that was revolutionary, too. I mean, mm-hmm. it was always seen as something, you know, hot dogs and rice and, you know, it was the s- lower quality. It wasn't even the scraps often, you know, bought out of some other extraneous account. Right. And even the fact of
4: taking the time and making sure that the staff took the time to sit down and eat a meal. Um, not just standing in a corner eating out of a plastic cup, uh, it was very important to me. And that's something that I saw in Europe when I was working in, in France. There was always, we'd set the table, the cooks would stop, sit down, have a meal. Often they'd have a glass of wine. But um, that was very important and very much a part of my experience uh, as a young cook in Europe. And I thought, well, this is, this is great. Uh, this, is, this is a wonderful thing. It's a chance to take a, take a breather, connect with the other cooks, and um, talk about whatever you want to talk about. But um, that's something I definitely brought to Union Square Cafe, and it was very important to me that we do that.
2: So what were some of the best family meals you had there at other restaurants in the restaurant group? And have any of these dishes ever ended up on a menu afterwards?
4: Yeah, actually some have. The uh, uh, Victor's Beef uh at Union Square Cafe, which Victor Australia Every time I go and I see that I just I'm so happy and I sit down and the recipes in the book. Uh just so good. Yeah. Just so good. Yeah, there's you know, each restaurant has its own personality and one one of the things that's very important about this book is it's about the people. It's about the people who work in our restaurants. And you'll be amazed at the 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 broad the variation in ethnic foods that you'll find in this book because it's the people cooking for themselves and we don't dictate and say no here's what you're going to cook and on Friday you got this Saturday you got that it's we of course there's there's uh, uh, parameters but the people cook from their heart and and create wonderful food and they really are taking care of each other they really are that first tenant Danny was talking about Really is expressed in this food, not making this up. This is the food that came out from our experience of surveying and eating and watching what's going on in the restaurant. And
3: one of the beautiful things about the restaurant is that if you were to, you know, take a map of the globe and put a, a thumbtack, a pinpoint in all of the cities of the world that people have come from and somehow found their way to working in a Union Square Hospitality Group restaurant, it's quite breathtaking. And so, family meal at its basis is an opportunity. It's called family. It's it's an opportunity for the people who work in the restaurant to care for each other. It's an opportunity for really good cooks to step away from what their chef has asked them to cook consistently for our guests and to cook something that, that may be part of their soul, part of their heart for one another. And we came to a point where we realized that we've got quite an amazing collection of of recipes each one of which actually tells a human story and that's what this book is this is not a you know a coffee table chef's book this is a book of soulful really good cooking from the heart
2: so and of, of those stories because i feel like that's been an impetus for all your restaurants there has to be some kind of you know innate attachment are there other businesses that may come out of family meals
3: Wow, it's another good idea. Thank you for that.
2: <laughs> it's on it's on record now, so I get like some kind of residual off that. <laughs> you can make just as much
3: money as we do. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Actually, that's a great uh, uh, lead into a question. I think everyone assumes as a restaurateur, you make a ton of money. You get to travel the earth. You get to do all these great things. Is that true? One or is it the care about hospitality and having these servicing other people that's more important?
3: Well, I think that you, if you get into the restaurant business. Primarily for the sake of making money, that's a big mistake. I think if you get into the <laughs> restaurant business primarily for the why, which is that it feels really, really good to do something that makes somebody else happy, I've always believed that the money will follow. And, you know, people ask all the time, you know, how did you did you get a focus group for this idea? Did you do your market research? And the answer is no. We we've never done a focus group or market research. Maybe we should, but <laughs> but uh, if the idea truly starts as something that you love yourself, and you say, if I could if I could just make other people happy with this kind of cooking, then I trust that really talented people will figure out a way to make a good living out of it. Then it all follows. You know, Shake Shack, uh, which which people see proliferating, uh, we now have 22 Shake Shacks around the world, as you noted, was born because of a love for a park. It was not born primarily for the purpose of making money. Do you need to make money in a restaurant? You bet you do because that becomes the fuel without which right. you can't take great care of each other. You can't take great care of your guests. You can't take great care of your communities. You can't take great care of the farmers and the winemakers. So you have to make money. If that becomes the primary reason for getting in business, I bet you'll do a minimally good job at all those other things.
4: Right. Uh, your question made me think of, remember, Miles Kahn paraphrased the very funny statement he made about When, when he first Coach, bought yeah, Coach Farm. Right. So <laughs> the best way to make a small fortune as a, uh, well, in this case, a restaurateur, is start with a big fortune. <laughs> <laughs>
2: i mean i think you've given all the reason to anyone who wants to make someone else feel good working the restaurant industry to come and work for you two for union square hospitality as a whole and i thank you so much for being on and being you know thank uh you so you know you. forthright about these answers and aspirations and i can't wait to see what happens in the future with all your ventures all your juices all your shake shacks yeah, and <laughs> all your cookbooks and uh Thank you again for being on. Great this to is be only nice for having part us. one of a ten-part series of Union Square Hospitality. Oh, Just great. kidding, but we'll, we'd love to have you back on. Have you on the Wine Show? Talk to Joe, etc. But thank you once again. You've been listening to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host Michael Harlan Turkell. hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at three. Cheers.